and uh, wishing everybody a good evening or good afternoon or morning, depending on the part of the world that you're in. And I'm, as Willem said, I'm very grateful for a chance to share with you our work over the last, gosh, almost two decades now, studying this brain system of attention. And I thought before I get into the kind of specifics and nitty gritty, I wanted to tell you a little bit about me and, and kind of the perspective that I take in the work that I wanna share with you uh, this evening. And it comes from the, the basic orientation uh, as a brain scientist that I'm interested in how the brain works most broadly, but in particular, how the brain's attention system works. How is it that this hardware that we, uh, that's pretty soft, but the hardware that we carry around inside of our, our skulls is able to perform such an extraordinary, extraordinarily complex and um, important function. So we use techniques like functional MRI and brainwave recordings and behavioral measures to actually study uh, how attention, attention works. And from that, we've learned a lot of things. The first thing we've learned is probably something all of you already understand and know just from your own lives is that this brain system is, is essentially the lifeblood of our experience. We need it for everything we do. And its power really comes out of its evolutionary history. The reason we think that uh, the human brain evolved to have an attention system is that it suffered from a big problem regarding its computational capacity. There was far more information in the environment than the brain could actually fully process. So this function of attention allowed for a selection of a subset of information that could then be fully um, analyzed and considered for one's actions and maneuvering around in the world. So we can think most broadly of attention as the ability to notice, select, direct, and manage the brain's computational resources in this specific way that helps us achieve our goals and uh, function in complex environments like, like the real world. So I always like to, to, I guess, anthropomorphize a little bit some of these functions. And, and if a have such power over everything we do, how can we conceptualize it? Well, one way to think of it is it's sort of like the brain's boss because wherever it is that our attention is directed really biases the functioning of the rest of what the brain does and how it actually considers information. So part of our question in, in the work that we've been doing is to understand just how it's put together and um, coming to understand its power. But what happens when you realize that something is so powerful, almost our human superpower, you might say, is that there are vulnerabilities and there is kryptonite in some sense. Uh, to use a Superman metaphor. And the kryptonite for attention is something we've actually spent a long time studying as well. And there's three main things that tend to degrade or deplete attention. And those are stress, this experience of perceived overwhelm that there's much more required of us than we're capable of doing. Threat, in that we feel vulnerable to external circumstances and evaluative processes that might threaten our, our safety, psychological safety, physical safety. And the third one is poor mood. So stress, threat, poor mood. All three of these degrade our attentional capacity. And what ended up happening in the course of my own research program, excuse me, is that after learning how attention works and how it can become degraded, I became very interested in 
or actually searching for methods by which we might train attention to make it stronger and less vulnerable to these kryptonites, kryptonite experiences that we all experience as human beings. So that was actually how mindfulness as a topic entered my laboratory's work. It was really a search for a brain training tool that we could offer individuals so that they would be less vulnerable to their attention degrading and, and um, causing problems in their lives. And it was sort of beyond just for our everyday ups and downs, right? All of us just in our typical human experience are going to experience stress, threat, poor mood. It's just part of what it means. But we were particularly interested in populations for whom these circumstances, the life circumstances that really entail threatening and, and uh, stressful uh, contexts, are the pro professional milieu in which these individuals operate. So I'm talking about very high performance, high demand individuals, such as, you know, let's say medical and nursing professionals. And we know in this particular moment during this pandemic, we are so reliant on their capacity to deal with ongoing stress and demand or military service members or emergency services um, employees and workers. So, so the thing about these groups of individuals is that not only is stress part and parcel of what their um, life experience is, but we rely, all of us rely on their success at being able to perform at their peak under such circumstances. And not only is a sort of professional role, but really for protracted periods of time. So we have a high stress interval, let's say for a, a medical student, just getting through residency or you know, a trainee getting through residency, or even somebody like a lawyer preparing for a case or a soldier preparing to deploy. Those preparatory intervals are stressful in and of themselves, but then it's go time. It's time to actually perform at your peak, whether it's taking an exam or performing surgery or uh, having your case go to trial, et cetera, or being on a literal battlefield. And so these concepts of vulnerabilities of attention and strengthening attention went beyond just a curiosity or a nice thing to have for us to optimize, but really uh, a way in which we could offer practices like these to people that may never come to them on their own. They may never think of themselves of needing some kind of um, stress reduction approach, but they're certainly interested in optimizing their performance. And by the way, I don't want to make it sound like these are some other group of people. I think this is all of us, frankly. And um, every single one of us, every single one of you listening to my voice right now, um, I think falls into this category. And I want to just highlight that particularly now, right, during this last six months or so during the COVID-19 pandemic, we are all experiencing a collective form of stress. And it is protracted. It's been many, many months now. We're experiencing a very peculiar kind of threat, right? It's a, it's a threat that has to do with our, our physical safety, our social connectedness, a threat to our typical way of life. And the, all of this can result in poorer mood as we function through the world. So I just wanted to also say that if any of you are, and I will just say, disclosing myself, I'm certainly in this position. Um, feeling this sort of cognitive fog, kind of a malaise or a fuzziness about your, your capacity to function over these last six months as we've been enduring the pandemic, I want to suggest to you that it probably has something to do with the way that your attention is being taxed and all that it's doing for you to keep, keep going on. So what we'll talk about in, in our time together is, is this whole 
this whole uh, set of topics. You know, what is attention? Uh, why is it that things like stress and threat actually degrade it? And then, as I said at the outset regarding my own lab's research, how can mindfulness training help us? Because I certainly don't think I'd be here sharing any of this with you at the Oxford Center for Mindfulness unless mindfulness was found to be a repeatedly reliable and I would say exclusively effective technique and you know, technique sounds a little bit reductionist, approach, lifestyle approach to bolster our sense of aliveness and our effectiveness in this world. So that's sort of a, a preamble, a little bit about me and, and what brings me uh, to this work. Um, there's three main things that I wanna share with you in our time together. Um, the first is to unpack very, as carefully as possible what attention is. I think uh, Willem in the guided practice he offered us with this metaphor of the flashlight gave a beautiful example of one aspect of attention, but there are others that I'd like to discuss with you. So that's the first thing, what is attention? And it's a very close cousin, something called working memory, as you heard in one of the titles that I, uh, of a paper I've written, many papers I've written actually. The second thing I wanna share with you really has to do with a particular kind of stress that a lot of people in the professional um, circumstances of participants in our studies experience. And that's something called VUCA. I don't know if that's a term you've heard before. V-U-C-A. And it stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And again, these VUCA contexts are those in which many high demand professionals have to operate. So we, I wanna to talk to you about what VUCA is and how it shows up in terms of degrading our capacity for attention. And then we'll get into some of the details regarding the studies we've conducted and what we've been able to find um, in our research. Now, I know that these, uh, the podcast and these evening sessions really are meant to allow people to kind of reconnect with the community of like-minded individuals who want to practice mindfulness. And I don't want to leave you thinking that everything I'm going to say to you is just sort of like an extension of a lecture you might hear at a typical seminar. That's, it's certainly going to have a lot of those elements, but I want to suggest to you that as, as I think Willem foreshadowed, this can be the focus of your practice for this evening. So we have something like maybe 35 or so minutes together, let's say 30 minutes together, right? And that can be your 30 minute mindfulness practice. Think of it as a mindful listening practice. I think it's particularly uh, compelling to think about listening to a lecture or a podcast or um, you know, even talking to a, a friend or a loved one as a active mindfulness practice because of one very interesting sort of data point that I wanna start us off talking about. And uh, that data, data itself is the number 50%. So what am I talking about? Well, it ends up that 50% is the um, percentage of time that study after study has found that people are paying attention to their task at hand. So what does that mean? If we've got 30 minutes together, you'll hopefully be with me for 15 if I've done this right, right? And that's the best case scenario for most of us most of the time. We're just sort of time traveling in and out of what we're actually trying to do. And that's gonna be key here. Let's see if we can get that up to just maybe 55 or maybe even 60 by uh, choosing to have my voice and, and the words I'm saying as your, your practice. So don't think of this as not being a practice session, really just think of the content as 
as the practice itself. Hope that's okay. Okay, so let's start off by talking about this first topic of, um, of what attention is. Now, attention itself is very, actually very late to develop over the course of human development. The system, which is part of this broader system of something called cognitive control, or our, our ability to actually, um, as I foreshadowed in my definition of what attention is, really select a subset of information and control the contents of what we want to do with it for some purpose, for some goal-driven purpose. And attention, as well as sort of the larger suite of cognitive control processes, doesn't develop till we're about 25 or so. So it's late to sort of come on the scene. And overall, we need it to do these critical things of selecting, managing, noticing what's going on in our environment, both in the external environment and frankly, the internal environment as well. So you can already tell it's a very complicated set of things that goes on with the attention system. It's actually not one thing. And what this system does to be able to fully do all of its functions, it's, we can think about it as being divided up into sort of three main subsystems. So I wanna tell you a little bit about the subsystems and the way that I like to do this to just make it handy, especially because you're listening to my voice and I have no slides or images to show you. So I'll try to paint some kind of mental picture to uh, make this more uh, easy to follow. So each of these subsystems I'll describe with a little bit of a metaphor. And the first one, thankfully, Willem has already done my job for me, is a flashlight metaphor or a torch, depending on the part of the world that you live in. What do we know about this capacity of attention? This is something we call the orienting system of attention. All right, so just like a flashlight, wherever it is that we direct our attention, wherever we orient our attention, we get privileged access to that information. It's as if it's sort of brighter, more salient, and um, the details become more accessible to us, okay? And very much like the flashlight, wherever the flashlight is not pointing actually has diminished information processing. That's actually really important. It's not just that where we direct it is benefited, but that where we don't direct it is inhibited in some sense. And that tug between um, what we pay attention to and what we don't pay attention to becomes very important to further highlight what's relevant from what's irrelevant. So just like the physical flashlight in the external environment, we can direct it and point it to things in the external environment. Right now, if you're watching this on Zoom, you might be directing it to the screen, but we can also direct that flashlight to the internal environment. And that tends to be very powerful as well. We do this so easily, right? In a guided practice like a body scan that we, we started off our session with, we can do it to sensations that are just ongoing in the body. We can direct our attention to thoughts, memories, emotions, all of this is happening because of this capacity to willfully direct and select with this flashlight. But it ends up that's not the beginning and end of, of how attention works. There are two other systems that I wanna share with you because as you'll see when we get to uh, discussing mindfulness, all of these systems work hand in hand and are strengthened through the suite of practices that are part of most mindfulness training programs like MBSR and MBCT. All right, so the second metaphor of, uh, of attention is something we call the brain's alerting system, all right? So alerting, which is sort of the technical uh, term, 
really has to do with our capacity to be vigilant and ready for information processing. The metaphor I like to use for this is think about the last driving or riding your bike or walking, you might have come across a construction site and there's this kind of flashing yellow traffic light or sort of a light put there to kind of warn you, alert you. What does that typically mean when you see something like that? It could be a caution sign or a flashing light of some sort. Typically this means be vigilant, be aware, be cautious, but you're not given specific instructions on what it is that you should be attending to, right? Unlike the flashlight, which you're gonna to direct to a particular location, for example, being vigilant is a broad receptive stance and without knowing what might be uh, coming your way, you wanna be ready to deploy attention so that in a moment you're safe and protected from whatever might happen if you're wa walking past a construction site, for example. So I hope that that sort of distinction makes sense, right? The very narrow focus and this very broad readied state. And then there's yet a third type of attention. Um, and I like to use the metaphor of a juggler here that may, may or may not work for you. You can try it out. So this is what we call the executive system of attention. And that term executive is very much like the way we think about executives and corporations, right? What is the job of the executive? It's not to go in and do every little task, every single task that the organization may require, but it's to oversee, to manage, to ensure that one's actions and one's goals are aligned. And the reason I talk about it as, as, a, as a juggler is really because it's keeping all the balls in the air, managing and maneuvering to make sure the whole operation is fluidly ongoing um, without dropping any of the balls, so to speak. So I think that we can think about the, the flashlight as selection, right, orienting. We can think about the caution sign as um, uh, sort of noticing or broadening. And we can think about the juggler as managing our attention and our attentional resources. All three of those work hand in hand uh, repeatedly um, all the time. We, we, we use these systems all the time. Now I wanna talk about the, the fourth sort of um, system, which is not technically attention, but it's, I would call it a, a very close cousin that attention always works together with. And this is something called the working memory system. And I hope that it'll become clear in a few minutes why, why I'm telling you all about all these systems. But, for now, let me just give you again what I mean by this term and, and um, how it interfaces with attention. Well, anytime we pay attention, whether it's in this narrowed way or managing way or broad way with noticing, um, the information that is then uh, processed has to be temporarily stored long enough so we can work with it, right? So, so this is where working memory as a system comes in. Don't get too thrown off by the term memory if you haven't heard this term before, it's really about the working part. So working memory is the ability to maintain and manipulate information over very short periods of time. So think about maybe from a, a few seconds to maybe maybe tens of seconds, maybe up to a minute is where we, is the time frame of working memory. If you prefer a computer metaphor, you can think of it as your computer's cache, right? It's not something that needs to be saved for the long term, but absolutely needs to be available so it can be used in an active form. Same thing goes for working memory. Our goals, our plans, um, our um, information that we wanna process is all held in working memory. And the metaphor I use here is a whiteboard. Oh, and I was listening to one of the prior podcasts with uh, Mark Williams. He, he said, the mind's workbench, which I love, and he's so more, much more poetic than I am, but it's the same idea. It's this place 
it, as the metaphor goes, where we temporarily hold information. And if you think about it from the whiteboard perspective, you're holding it there just long enough to use it. So it's a peculiar kind of whiteboard. The ink that you use to write on the whiteboard won't stay forever, it's disappearing ink. So if you want something to stay up there for longer than a few seconds, you've got to rewrite it over and over again to keep it on that whiteboard. Sometimes we're doing that willfully. Other times content just lands on our whiteboard in the context of, for example, rumination or ruminative or persistent negative thought. It can just show up there repeatedly in our current conscious experience. So just to give you a flavor for, for the utility of working memory, think about the last time you were having a conversation with somebody, right? You've got a, you're kind of going back and forth with your conversation partner and they're on a particular point. You have a response you want to give to that point, but you're not rude. You're not going to just interrupt them and blurt it out. You're going to hold that thought, that comment long enough for there to be an appropriate pause and then you'll deploy that comment into the conversation, right? So that would be a very effective use of our working memory. That particular comment may never come up in your mind again. It may never have any other use, but in that moment, you need to have it, you needed to have it queued up and kept ready so that in the appropriate moment, you were able to use it. So successful working memory. An example of a, probably a not, not a successful working memory episode, and unfortunately I'm having more and more of these uh, lately, is uh, walking very confidently to your bedroom, right? You're walking there, you get there, and you're like, I have no idea why I'm in this room. I thought I was here to get something, but it's completely escaped me. Has anybody else had that kind of experience, right? These are just what you know happens sometimes. It could be your glasses, and sometimes usually by the time you're halfway down the hall, you gotta go back again because it's come back into your working memory. But that would be not a successful use of working memory. It was on the whiteboard, but the ink vanished faster than you could actually access it to get the item that you wanted, okay? So the reason attention and working memory are so important is because they really form not only the, the current contents of our conscious experience, but our ability to use that information to maneuver through our life. And you know, if you're practitioners, for example, uh, you can get a very poignant example of your own working memory. This happened to me a lot when I first started practicing uh, mindfulness that I'd sit down for a nice, you know, let's say I wanted to do a 20 minute practice. Within the first few minutes as the mind is settling, every item on my to-do list would come up. And right, and or more items that I wanted to put on my to-do list, to list came up. And then they were so compelling and so enticing and so important. I somehow wanted to keep trying to remember them so that when my practice session was over, <laughs> I could actually write it down on a piece of paper. Now, I think I've gotten a little more wise with my own practice to, to some more often than not, let it go. Let the, let the ink fade as it will and get back to the breath or whatever um, target anchor object I've chosen. But we all know this kind of experience of some, some kind of content arises and we have this sort of almost desire to keep it held in mind, but we know it's not gonna stay on its own. We have to work to keep it there. And that's because it's using our working memory. Hopefully that makes sense. And so now that we've learned a little bit about, um, you know, and talked about um, these core systems, right? Orienting, alerting, executive functions, um, working memory. I want to move to sort of the second topic, which um, really has to do with why it is, or let's start with what it is that stress does to these systems. Because often I hear, um, I hear that, uh, you know, attention is this cold cognitive system. Sure, I may use it to solve a math problem or do my taxes, but it doesn't have anything to do with my emotional life, right? 
Well, as I said at the outset, it absolutely um, is critical for everything we do. The content, the directedness of our attention can be applied to multiple kinds of content. It can be sensations in our environment. It could be our own emotions or thoughts or memories. And this is actually a really important point. Not only are our attention and working memory the conduit to get information from the environment, for example, into our minds, right, in the context of learning and memory, et cetera. Uh, if you're a student, you know you need to pay attention in order to learn the information that your professor is, is saying to you. But it goes the other way too. To extract information out of long-term memory, it would then sit in working memory in this active state before we might actually use it in some sense. So I just wanted to highlight that it's sort of a, a bi-directional important conduit. But going back to sort of stress and these systems and what happens, I wanna revisit each of these systems in the context of uh, a high stress situation that can derail um, attention, for example. So under high stress, what we know is that this flashlight capacity, this ability to direct attention can sometimes get caught on certain kinds of mental content. So for example, when you think of something like persistent negative thought, it's almost like the flashlight was directed toward this internal uh, content, which happens to be quite negative, depressogenic, and it's stuck there. You can't almost yank it away. Sometimes this is referred to, um, I don't know if you have this term in the, in the UK, but sometimes if you're on a road and there's an accident, there's a slowing down of all the cars because everybody's sort of rubbernecking, they're looking back to see what happened. It's that sort of attentional rubbernecking. We're almost kind of can't get past it. The contents has a stickiness to it that sort of keeps our attention focused on it. That's a very different way of thinking about, uh, you know, what might drive poor mood. It may actually be uh, an inability to control our attention that keeps our mood uh, driven by this negative content. And unfortunately, stress can actually make those kind of um, the stickiness of the content as well as the inability to control the flashlight more and more pervasive. When we think about stress and the alerting system, it's quite different. I mentioned, you know, walking past this construction site and maybe seeing a caution sign. Under high stress, you might end up experiencing all of life as requiring this sort of hypervigilance. Everything feels like a flashing yellow caution sign. And this hypervigilance can actually put the alerting system into overdrive. This is very common in disorders like anxiety and PTSD, for example, where there's no really distinction made between um, kind of being uh, highly aroused and broadly noticing um, when it's appropriate versus when it may not be appropriate. So something like depression and anxiety, we can already see that they may be related to not only the onset of high stress experiences, but really dysfunction in the way the attention systems uh, corresponding to those disorders work. The third system, the juggler actually has a different set of, set of uh, things that can happen during high stress that almost make it um, look a lot like attention deficit disorder. So under disorders like ADD, what happens is that the balls drop, right? The juggler is not able to keep goals and performance aligned. And under high stress, that tends to happen more and more as well. The manager, uh, the director of, of all these operations tends to not function behavior is completely not aligned uh, with our goals, right? And this can cause problems not only for our ability to operate in the world, 
but our mood and our psychological health as well. So this is just to say that, that all of these systems, and by the way, working memory interacts with all of them, as I was saying earlier, can become problematic with, um, with stress. But let's kind of dig in a little bit uh, deeper to, to ask, well, why is it? What happens to attention sort of fundamentally that leads it to stop working well under stress? And this takes, this will take a little bit of a journey now, a teeny bit of brain science to, to just say, this has to do with a very compelling aspect that is almost, I would, not almost, it is uniquely human which is the brain's capacity to simulate reality. So, you know, we always talk about, oh, I can't wait till we have a time traveling machine, you know, as technology develops. We already have a, an exquisite time traveling machine. We just carry it around uh, in our heads, right? We are so able to simulate reality so that not only can we travel in time, but we can actually travel into other people's minds. So I like the idea of time travel and mind travel. And both of these capacities rely on memory, they rely on um, attention as well, as we'll talk about. But, but let's just break it down for a second. So, so we're in now a high stress circumstance, right? And we, have, we know we've got this mind that is so capable of mental time travel and simulating a whole virtual reality inside our own minds that is quite abstracted from anything that might be happening in the external environment. So what let's say now this is happening in the context of wanting to have your attention on a task at hand in the moment you can think of a a, a firefighter let's say that who's watch standing to make sure there are no fires out in the in the wilderness right or you can think of a um, operating uh, room technician who's looking at all of the the uh, indicators on all the equipment to ensure that everything's aligned you have a very specific task at hand but the mind has this mind of its own, where 50% of our waking moments, it's not gonna be engaged in that. And not only that, in those 50% of moments, it's actually journeying around. So this is where uh, another metaphor might be helpful. So not only can we think of it as time traveling, but to use sort of an MP3 or a video recorder analogy, we can rewind the mind very easily, right? We can reflect on the past. This is typically a very productive thing we do. We, 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 uh, time travel to the past to see what events have occurred, reflect on them, or we can fast forward the mind to actually plan and envision future events. But under these circumstances where the stakes are high and the stress is high and something is needed in the moment, we may not always do this quite as productively as we hope. So under high stress, what we know happens is people don't typically just rewind the mind to kind of objectively assess their past, they're now ruminating and regretting as they relive the experiences that they might have endured. And, you know, even now when we think about the current pandemic, when we think about what sort of life was like, I mean, I know now, even if I see a commercial, I might get a little like weepy uh, thinking about somebody going to a store to buy something. It's like, oh, remember when we could easily go to the store without having the mask and the gloves and all these checks we've got to do before just walking out of your door and being able to easily just go buy some flowers or you know uh, uh, some supplies for a nice dinner. Um, there is an aspect of sort of a, a ruminative quality, a, a dysphoric almost quality that latches you onto the past. And now under high stress, when we fast forward, we're not simply planning productively, but we are actually 
dysfunctionally in many cases, catastrophizing and worrying. And think about this. We're not just worrying about anything. We're worrying about events that not only haven't happened yet, but they may never come to pass. They may never happen. So now we've got a mind that still needs to perform in the present moment. It is yanked around by this wonderful time travel capacity that isn't working so wonderfully for us under high stress so that we're ruminating or worrying, for example. And we've got this propensity of mind so that 50% of our waking moments, most healthy human beings are going to do this. So what do we do? This is exactly the moment where we can think about mindfulness, right? Because what I would say is that the opposite of a stressed and wandering mind is a mindful one. And in the context of mindfulness, we're keeping that button right on play. We are experiencing and fully present for the moment to moment unfolding of our lives. And the sort of, um, I guess, almost academic definition that I like to talk about with regard to, to mindfulness is that mindfulness is this mental mode. It's a way of making the, the mind uh, that has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience without conceptual elaboration, without emotional reactivity, or to put it more plainly, without a story about what's going on right now. So that we are going back to this beautiful capacity of a virtual reality simulator that our mind has. It's actually stepping away from that mode and experiencing life directly. And I wish that it was the case that we could just tell people this, you know, and they're fine. They're like, okay, got it. Keeping the button on play. No problem. Here I go. Off to be mindful. We'll not make any mistakes. We'll not uh, get lost in thought. But unfortunately, that's just not the case because there's such a strong drive for us to default to this way of making the mind, of mind wandering. And, you know, mind wandering, let me just be clear about what it is, because oftentimes people will say, well, I like to have my mind wander. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing that my mind gets to do. And I probably would not disagree with you at all, but I, I, when I say that term, I mean something specifically. When I say mind wandering, I'm talking about having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. So you do have an intended target for what you wanna put your attention on, and the mind has left that target for some other purpose, right? So when, and this, there's quite a bit of work done on this topic, um, including a lot of the work in my own lab, that really sets the stage for why we wanna offer mindfulness training. So um, just to say a few things about mind wandering and what the costs are of mind wandering, because there are quite a few. The, the most obvious one, is that if we're mind wandering, right? Just like the example that I was giving of, of mentally time traveling when you wanna be watching uh, what's in front of you, you make errors. So mind wandering leads to performance errors for the task at hand, okay? The other thing it does is it makes your responses quite variable. You're just fast on some uh, episodes of what you're trying to do, slow on others. When we give people laboratory tasks, we call this just response time variability. It's a mind that's unsteady. And, and really being yanked around. And you can see it in the way that people perform on these simple uh, button press tasks. Uh, the third thing that happens that I think is particularly problematic when we think about people like emergency services workers or um, you know, even military service members, police officers, for example, or firefighters, we experience during mind wandering something called perceptual decoupling. And what does that mean? That basically means that our capacity to perceive sights, sounds, information, and input from the environment, our ability to perceive is 
diminished, degraded. Our attention is now decoupled from that. So what does that actually show up as? I mean, I think we can, again, we have these everyday experiences. Think about the last time that you were actually lost in thought. You were uh, thinking about something, you know, you might have been sitting in front of your computer, but you're having a thought about, I don't know, some other interaction you might have had. You're lost in thought. Somebody calls out something to you. You may not hear it, right? It might take you a minute to kind of capture back what that was. In some sense, the mind is so powerfully able to hijack attention away from the perceptual field that it doesn't even perceive fully anymore. So this perceptual decoupling is, is, is again, very, very problematic. And the fourth thing um, that happens with mind wandering, so not only do we make errors and we're more variable, less steady, we, we are really dulling down our ability to perceive, but, and this is actually tied to what we talked regarding psychological health, when we're mind wandering, we're more likely to be in a poor mood. In fact, episodes of mind wandering may drive us to have poorer mood. So it ends up being sort of a vicious cycle. Not only does poor mood drive down attention, but mind wandering further <laughs> drives down attention, become, become in this spiral. So all of this is to say that I hope it makes sense of, you know, again, why it is and kind of mechanistically in this, in this sort of uh, broader sense, why it is that mindfulness training, uh, uh, sorry, why it is that attention is so prone to degradation over stress. And, and for the last part of what I wanna share with you in the last few minutes, I'd like us to actually launch this last part by doing a short practice. Uh, Willem guided us in, a, in a, a lovely sort of quick pass body scan at the outset. And I would like to ask him to just offer us a focused attention practice where we're gonna use that flashlight um, to keep it steady on breath related sensations. And um, it'll set the stage for what I'd like to tell you about regarding mindfulness training and the impact we see in the populations that we work with. So Willem, would you like to offer us a quick practice? Sure, and um, Amisha, I'm gonna use your language as well. So just as you set up your posture, if you just take that sense of the, um, the construction site light, the alerting kind of light, just if you kind of, if you like, kind of just dialing that down, uh, assuming that you're in an environment that feels kind of safe, just dialing that down and um, just having a sense of safety and contentedness in this moment and turning the flashlight of your attention to the sensations of the breath. So the breath is coming in at the nostrils and the mouth, traveling down into the, through the throat, into the lungs, expanding the chest, the diaphragm moving. So either having a sense of the whole breath or choosing a very particular place where you can sense the movement of the breath. That can be the nostrils, it can be the mouth, it can be the belly. Tuning into the full duration of this breath. So right the point at which the breath starts to come in. Tracking it all the way through an in-breath. Then you'll see a little point where it turns, but like a tide it becomes an out-breath, all the way through the out-breath. And then the body will breathe itself. There'll be a little gap again before the next breath. Breathing in, sensing the sensations of breath all the way through. A couple of rounds of breath. So just to use the final part of Amishi's kind of tripartite, three-part model, 
No need to juggle. Just put all the other balls down for now. The only ball that you're holding right now is the sensations of this breath. If the mind wanders, this is part of the practice. I'm guessing Amishi is going to come on to say this. This is where the 50% where the mind's wandered. Ah, the mind just wandered. Bringing it back to the duration of this breath. In. And now. One more, and then I'm going to hand back to Amishi just this breath. wonderful thank you so just to wrap up and tell you sort of where we're at with regard to a lot of the work that we're doing i think that 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 lovely practice we were just guided through uh efficiently and connected to the topics that i've been sharing with you really sums it up of why it is that mindfulness training may actually be a useful tool to strengthen the brain's attention system the instruction to pick a very specific sensation tied to the breath, select it and maintain your focus there, is a way to exercise the orienting system and working memory. This invitation to actually notice the arising of mind wandering or off task thought that may come up is a way to really exercise that alerting system, the noticing system. And then redirecting attention back as a part of the management of making sure that what we're doing in the moment aligns with our goals, right? So in some sense, this uh, focus, select, notice, and redirect is the, as some of my military colleagues have, have put it, the push-up that we're giving the mind to make the entirety of the attention system a stronger and more capable. And just a few things I wanted to say to you about that. So I hope that that makes sense of why repeatedly engaging in something like a focused attention practice can do that. If we do something like an open monitoring practice, we're going to have a different set of things that we're going to exercise, but I guarantee they're all going to still tap into aspects of systems of attention and working memory. And even things like uh, loving kindness or connection practices have these qualities of engaging and repeatedly exercising uh, these core cognitive systems that we, we so need. So one of the things I wanted to say is that in the groups that we've worked with, these high stress, high demand, high performance groups, I would consider all of us uh, as part of the, the participant pool, potential participant pool. One thing we know is if we actually assess attention at the beginning of some high stress interval that people are going to go through. So it could be students going through the academic semester. Right? We assess their attention formally by having them do these tasks and looking at their performance. And then we have them come back, let's say several weeks later, four to eight weeks later, and have them do the same assessment. Now they've endured in that intervening period of time, multiple high stress weeks, right? Where the demands are gonna continue moving forward and the uh, expenditure of attention is going to be needed throughout. What we see is that if we do nothing at all in that intervening time period and people are experiencing high stress, their attention and their working memory and their mood will decline. Everything will look worse. 
That's just the nature of what happens with stress. So going back to what I said at the outset, if you're feeling this sort of cognitive fog, that's a very appropriate response that your attention system might have by the, by the ongoing and protracted nature of the circumstances that we are collectively globally enduring right now. But the very good news is, and I think a lot of the people listening also fall into this category, that if you practice, if you engage in regular mindfulness practice, even something as straightforward as the mindfulness of, of breathing or um, focused attention practice we just did, for as little as 12 minutes a day, three to five days a week, we've seen that we can actually protect against that decline happening in attention. And students, uh, service members, uh, military spouses, um, many professionals of very different, you know, very various different corporations, for example, elite athletes, all of these groups that we've been working with that if we do nothing at all show a decline, when offered mindfulness training for very little time every day, can actually keep attention steady. And the even better news is that the more that they would engage in these practices over the formal period of training that we offer them, the more they benefit. So it very much is like physical exercise, where the more you do, the more you benefit. Of course, if you don't do it at all or discontinue, you're not going to receive the benefits. So I just want to end by saying thank you all um, for this uh, wonderful opportunity. Um, I ask you to please continue to pay attention to your own attention. Uh, take it seriously. Uh, hold it with dear care because you, you absolutely need this precious brain, uh, brain resource. And I hope that some of what I've said today um, is of benefit to you in your lives and the work that you do. Thank you very much.